Hey, folks. Uh, welcome to the Fallon Farm. Ed Fallon with you here in the studio with me, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman. We have the uh, law firm of Goldman, Goldman, and Fallon uh, taking you through the uh, conversation today. Actually, it's uh, you, you guys aren't lawyers. You're doctors, right? Last time I looked, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, Dr. Charles Goldman in the studio with me and Dr. Stephen Goldman joining us shortly on the uh, phone. I want to thank uh, the folks here at La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM for an excellent studio where we broadcast this show from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. If you'd like to join the conversation, the number to call is 515-528-8122. That's 515-528-8122. So uh, just a quick, a quick look ahead here. We're going to be... Um, we're going to be talking about uh, <laughs> how Hollywood might be um, might be making it tougher Democrats to win in some of these uh, rural states. We'll be talking about the uh, capital gains tax uh, and how that is yet posed to be uh, poising to be another um, another giveaway from the Trump administration. We'll also talk about a um, a local fiasco that might resonate in communities elsewhere. The um, the crazy stuff that the city of Des Moines did with. Uh, with a bike lane. We'll talk about the latest in climate and food news, including soil degradation, McDonald's uh, uh, poisoning a few of its happy customers, and um, and the incredible situation with fires out west. So plenty more to talk about beyond that, but that's the uh, that's the short list. <laughs> yeah. So again, if you'd like to join the conversation, give us a shout at 515-528-8122. Joining us now on the phone, Dr. Stephen Goldman. Hello, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, Ed. How are you? Oh, you're just saying that, aren't you? You're not really fine, are you? Uh, these days, it's all relatively fine. <laughs> okay, well, relatively fine. Speak, gonna... Speaking of climate change, he's sweltering back east, also yeah. with record heat. I've heard that. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll go with relatively fine. Yeah, well, here it's been pretty darn nice. I mean, I think uh, there's some reason the uh, Midwest has been spared some of the worst impacts so far. If, uh, if you can... If you can um, yeah, that, yeah it's been brutal. It's, it's been brutal. We were up in Maine on vacation. It was in the 90s. It's in the 90s. It's all this week in Maryland. It's been really brutal. Yeah. Well, here, relatively cool, but uh, we've got our tornadoes and floods to deal with. Yes. All right. So speaking of uh, the, the, the tornado in the tornado known as Trump, uh, <laughs> gosh, um it is amazing to see that there are lots of people, uh, despite all the things he said, that are still like ad, you know adamantly behind him. And uh, you guys have a theory or a postulation or just an idea that uh, that uh, maybe Hollywood has something to do with it. <laughs> I did. <laughs> well, uh, I think his latest part part in the work was the Don Lemon and uh, um, Lebron James, of course. Uh, his latest. Um, you think there's a backlash against uh, Hollywood? I think LeBron. Think I, by the way, I think I think LeBron slam dunked uh, Trump on that one. But uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, mean, I, I don't know that it's a backlash per se against Hollywood, but uh, I think we've seen, you know, through the last two years that certainly Hollywood tends to be more progressive and liberal in its avowed political philosophy and. Um, we do tend to get, as was put last week, uh, you know, lectured at by people who are very wealthy out in Hollywood. And I think what you and I talked about was the idea that in particular certain lifestyles are 
put out there, which allow the culture wars to be enjoined by our president um, to a greater degree than perhaps they're represented in the states that are not on the coast in this country. Yeah, I just, I'm just wondering, though, how, to what extent do cultural wars matter anymore? Uh, most people are struggling economically. Because cultural yeah. wars do matter. That's, that's, what's, that's what's keeping Trump uh, at 80 percent plus survive, uh, you know, uh, approval among Republicans. So people are still, uh, still capable of somehow rationally or at least in their own minds rationally blaming gays or lesbians or Muslims or the poor for their own economic hardships. Well, I, I think we could ask my brother about that, but I definitely feel like that's true. Well, I mean, you know, th- there's a slippery slope here. Hollywood has their own sets of rules, and I think sometimes over the years the portrayal of Hollywood as doing, you know, this tremendous service and showing different lifestyles, I think in some ways is overblown. And when you go over this, I, I remember when George Clooney uh, won the Academy Award. And he talked about how proud he was of Hollywood and how progressive it had been. And he mentioned Hattie McDaniel, for example, you know, the first African-American to win the, uh, an Academy Award for acting. Well, he didn't mention the fact that Hattie McDaniel came in through the servant's entrance, that she sat by herself, and was always relegated to uh, servant's roles in, in Hollywood. Um, the idea that none of, no one in the United States knew about AIDS until Philadelphia came out. It's frankly insulting to many of us in the medical community, particularly me and my medical student colleagues who were at NYU from 79 to 83 at the beginning of that. And so the idea that Hollywood is an accurate portrayal and is a bellwether for some of these things, I think is a little overblown. Well, I but I think, I, they, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge uh, consumer of movies and TV, but I, my impression is that that the by by normalizing um, uh, constituency groups that tend to be maligned and in some cases even blamed for problems, sure, uh, it, it, it helps advance equality, and that's a good thing. Oh, I, I well, I wasn't I wasn't naysaying that, but I was making the point that it's an entertainment medium, and th- there's varying portrayals of, of of first of all how who gets films made, what they're financing. Um, you know, this is, it's very interesting to watch now when you see, uh, Charles and I were talking about this the other day, that we, and hopefully, you know, Ed, you, you would find this as interesting as we do, is now that you have the ability to make any kind of film you really want, if you can get financing, you can have the casting that you want. The question is, is the quality of the art better? And there's some suggestion that it is not. You can be just as restrictive under complete openness as you have under the studio system. And, you know, ben Mankiewicz makes a great case for this on Turner Classic Movies, where he talks about the fact that under the studio system and under the, you know, the, the production code, they have to be more clever to get adult things said. The writing had to be better. Yeah. Acting had to be more subtle. I think there were elements of that. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I'm not the only one saying this. So there was a fascinating TV among comedians about this and about sort of the, and I hate to say this, being obviously a member of the left. Some of this is coming from the left. The idea of deciding who can say what, what things you can't discuss any longer, what, what you know, musicals maybe should never be done any longer. There was a discussion in yesterday's New York Times section about the boys in the band. 
Yeah. Well, and those those uh, targets are always changing too. There was a time when the diary of Anne Frank was regarded not that long ago. That was regarded as uh, as subversive and inappropriate. Well, um, I mean, let's let's look at two offerings that are. are One's out there now, and the other is in production. Okay, so we have, you know, the movie that caused the controversy with Scarlett Johansson, you know, right. Rub and Tug, which is about a trans man who ran a string of brothels in Pittsburgh, and then you've got the movie out about uh, Scotty, whatever his name is, who was the the basically the sexual fixer for. I read his book. Yeah. Yeah, for uh, you know the movie stars of the black and white era. Um, if you're sitting in Indiana, uh, northern Indiana, or out in the mountain states, or in the pseudo-Bible belt in the south, because of their obvious you know, hypocrisy about the Bible down south, um, where do you fit in with that? I mean, why would you be interested in movies of that type? Well, that, that's, uh, that's where some of the other... Uh <laughs> no, this is this is this is other shows coming to no, fill no, that gap. But this is California think, uh, talking to itself in many ways, and not just California. Yeah, well, that, it's, it's coastal California talking to itself. I mean, that, that's just, I mean, Ed. I'd like to make the point about that. I don't know if, you, if Charles, uh, you read the article yesterday about the Poison Band. We saw the production, and it was, it was fascinating to watch. It was a great production, although I thought, but there was it was very interesting when they did this article yesterday. All four of the people involved were gay men themselves. There was not one discussion about what was quite revelatory about about the boys in the band of its time, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, is it brought to light to straight people a lifestyle they knew nothing about, myself included. I remember when I saw the, you know, when I first saw the film, Friedkin's film, which is the original cast, and they were marvelous. What what did a teenager in the in the late 60s, early 70s know about, about the gay lifestyle? They didn't know anything about them. And the fact that you had a, a, a movie that tried to portray, and a play written, you know, beautifully by Mark Crowley, trying to portray, not for a gay audience necessarily, but a straight audience, the fact that people existed, they were like everybody else, they were looking for happiness in the way that they were looking for it, how can that be a negative? And it's fascinating to see the response to mm-hmm. the play yeah. from... Um, the different sectors. I was, but it's interesting that they have this article, and it's all from the gay male perspective. When I thought one of the things that was quite revelatory about the play, and, and again, probably having a Broadway in the fifty years, was the impact it had on the straight community. Hmm. Well, hey, uh, Stephen, I want to I open up our phone lines um, again: five one five five two eight eighty one twenty two. The number to call: five one five five two eight. Eighty-one uh, twenty-two. Let's go to uh, Laura on line two. Hello, Laura. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. I appreciate taking my call. Well, it's an interesting subject. I don't know if I would put so much emphasis and blame and uh, on Hollywood for where we are now. It seems kind of. Um, I mean, there's so much more out there that we need to be worried about in a way. <laughs> um, but I do get it. I mean, I mean, I mean the, the, the two movies that the gentleman mentioned, you know, one is um, going to be shown at the floor and the, you know, these smaller theaters we have here. I really doubt the people out in Clive are going to be watching that if they're not into that already. Um, Hollywood brings a lot of people um, together. And I think the one reason why people tend to fictionalize in their head that, you know, they're perpetuating these um, liberal bastions of thought 
is that Hollywood has always been, for the most part, open to um, marginalized people ahead of when the rest of the country is. Same right. as music, you know. Um, so may, m maybe you just can't get over raci racism in Indiana. Maybe you just need to get over that, and then you can go enjoy your movies. <laughs> well, okay, I would, I would differ slightly. Hollywood has not always been open to people who are marginalized. Well, no, I, I didn't say always. I, I didn't say yeah. always had. I said that it has traditionally been ahead of the curve, just this, just like our music scenes have. Obviously, the 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 um, like all of the big uh, studios controlled everything. I mean, that's what that one movie is about. You couldn't come out yeah. if you were gay, you know. Um, and but you know, the, the same people that maybe appreciated that back then, but also didn't like communism. Like, how do we? that with liking Putin and not liking those movies still. It just, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's just really major disconnect and obviously some major mind stuff going on for these people. Well, one quick question well, for all of you, uh, starting with Laura, just real quick. Uh, how do you think uh, our discuss our perceptions of Hollywood. Again, I think, I think we're I think we may have difference on differences of opinion in terms of details, but I think we agree that it is very influential and very much. Uh, you know, out of step with where a lot of voters in the red states are. How do you think that might affect the upcoming midterm election? Let me did everybody take a crack at that. Maybe starting with Laura. Sure. Well, um, I mean, you've, you've you've taken one part of the pie that's so. I mean, you've got media, social media in general, that has a lot to do with pushing people's different buttons, or you know, letting like letting them regurgitate their own stuff over and over. Um, I, you know, I really feel like it's a it's a very sort of racist, sexist backbone that has put out this propaganda that you know the Jews are you know it kind of fits in that whole narrative. The Jews are running everything. They're you know they have control all over of, of Hollywood and and media and news, and that's just a narrative that's it's propaganda being pushed by basically you know people that are not happy with diversity and inclusion. Well, no, I think that's a good point in that the history of Hollywood, in fact, was that the Jewish filmmakers left the East Coast because of Thomas Edison's racism and anti-Semitism to set up shop out there. Um, right. And so you're right. The, the history of Hollywood is, is about anti-Semitism slash racism. Um, I think part of the problem I have is the hypocrisy of Hollywood, which my brother alluded to, which is it's got a huge problem with sexual harassment. And yet it's, it, again, preaching people about inclusion and uh, fairness in the workplace. Um, it, it certainly had a huge problem with the issue of, of gay or other uh, sexual orientation in terms of, of uh, actors and actresses. Um, and it's also people who are extremely wealthy who are seen as scolds. So it personifies for middle America the thing they hate about liberals – which is that they tend to be, in their minds, well-off people who are telling them what to do, and you are not well-off when you're living in these places in the middle of yeah. nowhere in the United States. But the, but the crazy thing is, is that's exactly who they voted for. I mean, well, that's the irony. It's okay on the right. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. I just don't yeah. get it. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I think, I think that part of that is just what you're saying, which is the backdrop of the racism, et cetera, mm -hmm. that's associated, and also of the middle of the country against the coasts. 
um, and, and the perception of the coast, and which is weird because I've lived in California, and the middle of California is no different than the south in many ways. Go to Bakersfield mm-hmm. yeah. these places, and you're going to find yeah. attitudes just like in the south. Yeah. Laura, thanks for the call. I want to give, uh, yeah, give Stephen a chance to respond to that question and then open the line for other, other folks to call in if you'd like. Again, the number here is 515-528-8122. So, Stephen, the impact on the elections, what do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, this is fascinating because you've got a child of privilege who was elected. And, um, you know, I mean, talk about having no sense of the common voice and, and where things are in other places. I think that Hollywood, like other entertainment media, has a tremendous opportunity, which sometimes it takes. I mean, my brother and I were absolute devotees of The Wire. Still, I believe, the greatest show ever developed for television. And it really did, I think, open up to people what it was like to live in, in a place like an inner city, Baltimore. And that show tried so hard to portray it with journalists who knew the city, with actors who knew the city, with politicians who appeared on the show. And to try and portray, I mean, the, the center of the wire was a stone junkie. And, <laughs> and yet he was the moral center of that show. And one of the most beautiful <laughs> things in five years is we simply walked upstairs to have, to be able to sit at the table with his sister. I mean, that was such a amazing thing to portray. I do think that entertainment at its best can do that. I do think these kinds of things are tremendous. And I can tell you, Ed, that from the psychiatric literature and psychological literature on bigotry and racism, one individual who is portrayed as other, whether it's, you know, a gay, lesbian, African-American Jews, and you actually get to know them, attitudes change. And I think that aspect of what your caller alluded to um, can make the point that you might suddenly, that's why I was making the point about the boys in the band. When you start to suddenly see something a little differently because you perceive people as human, not as types, not as, not as a category, that's when, the be, that's when the beginning of acceptance starts. Well, and the, the other issue, too, in, in the American movie industry, which is unique versus, uh, let's say, Europe, is the acceptance of violence of any type as okay. In fact, you rarely see a movie for violence reasons, uh, given a high enough rating to interfere pretend, you know, with its potential market. Uh, but see, sexuality I, see, that, is a huge be, issue. All right. Well, I agree with that. And I think this is one of the problems you have with... The, with CGI, with uh, the body counts piling up, every 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 trailer you see is a dystopia, and there was also, but there were films that show violence quite differently. Again, look at the way the Wire portrayed violence. Look at the way uh, One False Move, one of the great wires portrayed violence. Portraying violence is one thing when you do it when you're Tar- when you're uh, Tarantino, and it's different with other artists how they portray it in terms of showing the devastation of violence not the sensationalism of violence like in the Die Hard films Charles there is a difference and there are films there are things on TV that make it clear the devastation provided by that kind of violence and it's more important I think that the other issue of course is that Americans have a real trouble separating reality from what's on TV or in the movies yeah um and it goes back to the question of why is it they, in many ways, um, middle America reacts against someone like Springsteen 
who really truly, because of his interest in traditional American music and what it led him to do in terms of him living out in Nebraska before he did the you know, Nebraska album, is somebody who is trying to, to, to work for the working class. But hey. he's seen as an elitist by many in the working class because he's wealthy. And yet Trump, who's a faux wealth <laughs> kind of guy, um, but because he's a TV personality, they're responding to this TV personality, this strong man who says, I'm going to, you know, you're fired. But it's the same illusion that happened during the Watergate hearings. People were calling in while the Watergate hearings were being televised and saying they'd like to see more of this person and that person because they really liked it because it was the soap opera crowd thinking that this was just a reality TV show. Hey, so I, I want to uh, – can we switch gears for a minute here? Um, sure. Capital gains. Uh, never <laughs> capital gains tax n- never been one that's particularly friendly to the middle class, the lower income worker working folks. But uh, it's all you know over the years, it's been restructured in such a way that it's been become more and more lucrative to be really wealthy and take advantage of the capital gains tax cut. But uh, it looks like that's not enough. We got more coming. Well, th- yeah, the deal with the capital gains is this: capital gains are already given preferential treatment under the U.S. tax code. They're taxed at twenty percent which is lower than the income rates, being that the majority of people who have investments are in the, should be in the highest tax brackets. So they're already getting a tax break. But of course, it's another wet dream of the Republicans and the Norquists that we need to give these people more advantages. So what they want to now have happen is um, that the capital gains should be indexed to inflation. So if the dollar was is now worth 20 cents versus 20 years ago. Right, because we, we index the minimum wage to inflation? Not. Not. <laughs> so that you're – so let's say you bought a house for $100,000 20 years ago. Since we've lost 8 percent of buying power due to inflation, that house, instead of being $100,000 as the basis for determining the taxation rate, would now be $20,000. How, how do they possibly have the audacity to suggest something like this at a time when most people are finding their – their income stagnant. Uh, because just look at the crowds at the Trump rally. He blatantly lies 15 to 20 times in his most recent rally. <laughs> and people are just not – because, again, people don't they, – they say, well, the mortgage deduction, this is great. What they don't understand is the mortgage deduction does almost nothing if your house is worth $100,000 and your income is low. Mm. All the advantages of any of these uh, you know, preferences accrue to the people who are the most wealthy. Ninety-seven percent of this, this idea – um, that yeah. we should you know, index capital gains would accrue to the upper 10 percent and two-thirds of it would accrue to the upper 0.1 percent of taxpayers. Stephen, what do you think? Is there enough uh, – is, is it obviously is – is there enough um, transparency to the fact that this is a tax cut for the ultra-rich that, that it might come back to hurt uh, Trump and the RNC and some of the other candidates uh, you know, who might run on that platform? Well, it's the same question I always have as a Democrat for how they communicate this. I mean, I I will go to my grave saying that the Obama administration did a poor job of explaining Obamacare. And that would have, I mean, as as much as I objected to his policies, Ronald Reagan communicated. And he explained things in a way that the, the voters could understand. I mean, Bernie Sanders tries in relation to the uh, economic inequality in terms of that. This, do you, do you think, do you think Sanders does a good job at that? I think yes. I mean, uh, he clearly appealed. He appealed across generations. He tried to make it clear, to, at least to me, 
um, that there was that this is this is part of what's going on with the economic inequality, which is getting worse. I mean, we're going back to the we're going even beyond the you know the Robert Barron days in relation of where the money's yeah. concentrated. Yeah. And but I mean, it's it's always the economy, and again, Ed, this is. It's what's being communicated by whom, and, and let's face it, you know, you watch, watch the news every night. There's a numbing sameness to some of the same people being on all the time. There's, on, on either side, left or right. And um, the communication of what this actually means, as, as you and Charles are pointing out, th- this is critical. But, you know, not everyone's picking up the New York Times or the Washington Post. Uh, or the other newspapers, but they're, they're getting paychecks every week. Right. You, this this yeah. is a country where a huge number of people are having their taxes done by storefronts that are there for two months and then disappear. They don't understand what the tax preference is. And, right. and the irony here is, well, number one, I would say the American people are getting the message. The tax cut remains broadly unpopular. Yes. So they yes. do understand that they were screwed. Now, well, what's even worse about this preference is that this is what Mnuchin said, our Secretary of the Treasury, for those of you who don't know who he is. Uh, well, they're changing, they're changing so often it's hard to keep track foreclosure of Foreclosure baron that he is. They're going to sell this as if you're an older person with a house that's appreciated a lot. Now, since you have no assets to have you know, your retirement other than Social Security, you're going to be able to get more money out of your house. The problem is – that just like the mortgage deduction, any tax preference on your housing drives the prices of houses up artificially. And so how about you live in California, you live in New Jersey, you live in New York? Yeah. Yeah, the last yeah, thing right. you need that's is right. your housing prices to go up. So you're, again, going to hurt people who are trying to get into housing. I, you know, I think there's enough of this stuff happening that, that uh, the voters are going to notice. They're going to notice in enough places where it's going to matter. I mean, you, they already, but it's mostly blue states where this issue of housing prices going up matters. That's the problem. It's states that are already going to. But, but there's different, throw different out pieces. Different pieces of what's happening matter in, in almost all places. Even in, I mean, in farm country, uh, folks are not at all happy with the tariffs. The Koch brothers. Right now, there's a big war on between the Koch brothers and. President Trump. Uh, you're with the you're RNC. way overplaying that. that. Oh, I think that, it's going to be a big deal. That was over within two days. Oh, no, no. I think it's going to be a big deal. No. It's not going to mean anything at all. Who are they going to support? They're not going to support Democrats. Well, they, they, they don't mind getting rid of Trump so they can get Pence as the next president who they can work with a lot better. Right, but they're not going to actively try to get rid of Trump. And this isn't what 2018 is about. 2018 nah. is about the, the representatives. Yeah. Hey, uh, we've got to run, um, to, run to a break here. Uh, Stephen, uh, thanks for joining us. We've been talking to Dr. Steve Goldman. On the phone, and Dr. Charles Goldman here in the studio, the uh, the uh, the uh, political consulting firm of Goldman, Goldman and Fallon. Um, <laughs> well, uh, that's very good. All right, thanks, Stephen. Hey, before we take uh, we t- take a quick break and listen to some of the uh, so folks that helped make Lorraine possible, I want to take a second to recognize the underwriters of the uh, Fallon Forum. Underwriting for this program provided by Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. Uh, Gateway offers a full line of grocery items, a catering service, and a cafe that's open for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Uh, underwriting also provided by Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Diversity offers policies for home, car, property, life, and more. Uh, underwriting also provided by Community CPA, with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Uh, Community CPA provides tax, audit, accounting, and business, and re- and business restructuring services. 
Also, underwriting provided by Ritual Cafe, located at 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines. Ritual serves fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon here with you, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Okay, so all across the country... <laughs> what are you laughing at, Charles? I haven't even finished my sentence, and you're already laughing. All across the country, uh, cities are getting more hip to the notion that you got to make your streets friendly, not just to cars and trucks, but to bicycles and pedestrians, uh, people in wheelchairs, people on skateboards. And so the whole concept of complete streets is catching on. Uh, Des Moines has done a pretty good job, and then this happened. Imagine this: you're biking along a, you know, fairly wide bike lane along ML King, and you know you're, you're planning to go straight across. And instead of going straight across, where you know maybe a week earlier you could have done that, suddenly you're hitting a curb. You're hitting a curb. I mean, where the heck did that come from? Uh, did the did did someone who hates bicyclists put that in? No, apparently the city did. With me in the studio, well, Charles Goldman, of course, because mm-hmm. he really cares deeply about this issue, uh, <laughs> and Carl Voss, who, like me, bikes for a living, and Carl, what what the heck was that all about? I mean, there there have been multiple accidents caused by this decision to put a curb where, again, the trail used to go straight. I mean, some pretty serious accidents. Uh, not only accidents, but two lawsuits have been filed uh, against the city of Des Moines and um, serious accidents one one of the people uh, injured has has been unable to return to work so there was us um, this is actually called a side path it's like a, a wide sidewalk and um, had existed that way uh, as uh, 15 years and then all of a sudden the city added a six inch curb <laughs> in the side path. So as you were uh, cycling from um, Gray's Lake along, the, this is called the M.L. King uh, Trail, um, and you cross the street, and all of a sudden there's this gray curb in your way, and before you have a chance to maneuver out of the way, it's uh, right over the handlebars. And that, this, uh, this happened multiple times. It did. Um, so the um, so, so the city's response was to improve that, to address that problem by adding a bench. Uh, actually, <laughs> a bench and a trash can. Um, okay, just to kind of create more of an obstacle, obstacle course. Uh, kind of a warning, <laughs> like there's something here. So, yes. Well, how about a sign up the street? up the pathway that would say that deadly curb ahead well part of part of the issue is we we mistakenly believe that these graded curbs are there for the bicyclists they're put there actually for disability access disabled access and so the city is single-mindedly thinking about people in wheelchairs etc who are trying to cross i don't think that's true carl do you i mean that used to be the case but i think that's changed now well the um the I think they're called tactile pads. So those mm-hmm. are the little bumps. Sure, so yeah, they've, right. they've done that throughout the city, but they f- felt they had to realign this intersection, and um, it just made it worse. Um, c- 
complicating this was that in the especially in the morning light the um shadows from the tree completely obscured that there was a um, curb added here so it 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 was dangerous and um I think the work was done in March of twenty seventeen and it's uh, mid April before a lot of cycles are out the weather breaks and um it didn't take long before um Riders, uh, yeah. so had collisions. So, or so again, here. the city's attempt to fix it was simply to add two more obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, but bike vigilantes, I do not who know who they are. Maybe Carl doesn't know either. Maybe who knows? Maybe it was you, Charles. Oh, you mean this is going to be bike like, vigilantes? This is like out there. the Trump star in LA. <laughs> Someone's out there with a sledgehammer knocking the curb down. No, better yet, they they painted it bright yellow. Yeah. And then they installed, they, they glued three toilet plungers to just above the curb. Right. And so <laughs> that was, it was done over uh, last year, over the July, I think it was July 3rd. And uh, let's see, July 4th was a holiday, a Monday. And July 5th, the uh, plungers were removed, but the yellow paint remained. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question, this is immense stupidity in terms of ending up with two lawsuits and they deserve them for the stupidity which they you know well by they, they meaning we who's going to pay the lawsuits well the, the taxpayers <laughs> yeah, the taxpayers going right, right. to pay the lawsuits yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. since then this spring the intersection was reworked and made right um uh, I think that toilet, was... Toilet plunges are gone. Uh, toilet plunges are gone. There's no need for yellow paint. The uh, curb in the in the side path has has now been removed. All and right. so it's much better now, but... Um, it's again safe to bike in Des Moines. Charles, get your bike out. Let's go. <laughs> uh, hey, I have a phone number to call if you want to join us. 515-528-8122. 515-528-8122. Let's go to line one with uh, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the uh, Fallon Forum. Hey, Ed. Good. How are you? Good. So you have some ex- you know, some personal encounter with this uh, delightful section of trail that has, again, has been fixed, but... Yes, it's become near and dear to me a bit, but, uh, you know, kind of the exact scenario you described, I had uh, been very familiar with that particular intersection as I rode downtown uh, quite often with living downtown, and one day I was checking over uh, my blind spot, completing uh, 23 miles of a ride, and uh, just described perfectly, before I knew it, there was a new curb in front of me, and um, actually collided head-on into that curb, had a nice uh, carbon fiber road bike and uh that was the last i see it on that bike so the uh collision at about 18 mile an hour with the walk sign in front of me ripped the uh the front of the fork through the head of the bike and completely towed that bike wow uh, and it was hard to see yeah it's hard to go up on that intersection as, as you guys mentioned they slowly made improvements trying to bring better visibility and before I knew it, they had redone it, and you got a, a properly I, built intersection. I assume you were hurt. You know, I feel extremely lucky. I have some bone bruising on my knee and my thigh, as well as my arm, but I landed very evenly, and the beauty of that was no one part of my body was injured. But unfortunately, as you guys have noted, that is not the case with many others, and uh, yeah. you know, the bikes just aren't meant to handle that type of curse. So, was there, did the city reimburse you for the loss of your bike? 
Well, I had contacted the city with appropriate paperwork, and I had requested that they, you know, consider it a uh, consider that, and I was denied very promptly that that was not uh, their fault or something that they covered. And so, uh, yeah, I'm currently looking at uh, the other options I may have and trying to find some relief for that accident, but the wow. city was not supportive. Could you refile your claim? I believe that's the plan, yeah. So there's a two-year, um, from the date of the accident, two-year time period. And so with some of the other suits going forward, my plan would be to see if they, a reappeal may, may work. This could become the most expensive uh, bike crossing in the in the history of bikes anywhere in the U.S. <laughs> when you start adding up all what, the um, legal challenges. Andrew, right, what time of year was your uh, collision last year? Well, it was directly, it was the week after they had completed it, and unfortunately enough, I had been on vacation, uh, and so I actually ride pretty much year-round, and so I had taken that path prior to vacation and showed back up after vacation to uh, a new design that I was not familiar with, and so that was the first time I had ridden, it was uh, March, it was just a week after they completed it, I don't forget the exact date, but... Uh, well, well, Andrew, uh... Hang in there. Happy biking. Thanks for calling. Uh, Andrew, I know a couple attorneys who'd be interested in talking to you. Uh-huh. Well, I, I'm assuming that the city's, this, the city's view is that it's the moral hazard of not using uh, carbon-based uh, <laughs> well, you transportation. Know, I, yeah. I, I, I'm going to say, I, I just think it was a bad call. I mean, we've seen, we've seen the city of Des Moines, and again, this is true of cities across the country, go from having no, no, no presence, no allocation for bikes, to, you know, making... You know, modest uh, first steps. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember when the bike trail down at Bill Riley, the Bill Riley Trail was narrow. I remember some trails that were too windy. Um, actually, I think I think some windiness on a trail is very appealing. But uh, it's gotten better. The trails have gotten wider. The uh, the the way they grade has gotten better. Uh, we now we now have streets that have bike lanes on them um, and even protected bike lanes. So, you know, the city has done a lot of good things. So I guess it kind of surprises me that they would make such a bad call. And I don't know. I, I, I would love to see some analysis, internal analysis as to why that happened. And hopefully, uh, you know, a, a set of um, protocols that would prevent it from happening again. Well, that's the sentiment I share. I think the city is very, very uh, forward-thinking in their biking uh, support. So I appreciate that as a biker. It's great yeah. to live in a city like that. But you make a bad call, and, yeah, you, you deal with that, I guess. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thanks for calling in, and Carl, thanks for joining us in the studio as we uh, process this uh, interesting uh, story. Charles, uh, tied to the whole issue of bicycling is the uh, climate crisis, which, again, is escalating at an unprecedented rate with uh, fires raging across the West uh, uh, with um, incredible, uh, incredibly high temperatures in some parts of the country. And um, well, I think... Uh, Vis-a-vis the New York Times piece uh, about how we missed the opportunity to um, address the climate change issue in the 80s, um, it, it, it was very uh, centered on the United States. The fact of the matter is there are things going on globally right now beyond the 17 fires that are going on in California. Um, nighttime temperature in Oman, 106, highest nighttime. ever. Nighttime. Uh, we've got... Uh, excessive temperatures all over the world at this point. You have temperatures above the Arctic Circle 
that now are, have never been seen before. And no cooling at night. So this, this is the worldwide phenomenon. And, and the continued fixation to only present it as an issue in the United States is, is very troubling and really doesn't address the phenomenon as a planetary one, which, of course, is what's very important. Yeah. And not just important, just what goes on in the United States. I mean, I know that's that we are in the time of America first. <laughs> but um, we, live on a, we live on a planet in which we participate in all the things that happen in other places. Well, there you go with your liberal drivel again. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I understand what back in the 1930s, and it only matters what happens here. Yeah. But, I mean, I've lived in California, and uh, the fact of the matter is is that there's no longer a fire season out west. It's a continuous process. Uh, interestingly, when they interviewed people in Reading, and I've, I'm very familiar with Reading area because I've backpacked up there, um, a number of people said they don't blame climate change. They blame, of course, the government for not um, allowing the uh, forests up there to be trimmed appropriately and leaving too much kindling for this unusual well, a, dry. Well, a lot of that kindling is being caused by insects that that survive the winter, that destroy the tree, and you get a lot of dead, dead standing uh, firewood. Well, there's no question that management does affect having you know fuel for fires. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting, and again, it goes right back to what I said. The center portion, central portion of California is not L.A., it's not San Francisco, it's not Santa Monica. It is a very conservative part of the well, state, and, and, and there's a lot of Trump voters there. Yeah, and there's, a, there's an effort, actually, a, a, a serious legislative effort to try to create a new state out of the, uh, the uh, non-liberal portions of California. Well, Which would be I, most of the states. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, I mean, obviously that's never going to happen. I mean, any, anything that would take the fifth largest economy in the world out of the United States in any way or create well, it would just a, be a 51st and a 52nd yeah. state, it's just not going to happen. I, mean, yeah. uh, I understand <laughs> that, that there's a lot of great ideas out in California, <clears throat> but that one's probably not going to fly. Okay, so the um, again, we just got through the month of July. Uh, um, monstrous wildfires, record heat, and unprecedented flooding. That's, that, that, that's how it's described by the USA Today uh, story that came out last week. And, um, <clears throat> you know, Michael Mann, uh, Penn State University climatologist uh, and very noted in the profession, says, quote, it's not rocket science. You make the earth hotter, you're going to move, you're going to have more extreme heat. You're going to have longer periods of extreme heat, and that's what we're seeing. And so... You know, I, I don't. I don't know how much more evidence we need before we realize we've got to get our acts, act, you know, act together. Well, it, it's it's not just about the evidence. Uh, interestingly, uh, you know, Bill McKibben wrote an article saying it's, things are not as terrible as we always say. Uh, in terms of per capita emissions related to uh, you know, the population of the planet, we continue to actually emit less greenhouse gases. But there's more of The us. problem is that we have unbridled population growth in certain places in the United States, in certain places in the world, which, exactly, we have cumulatively greater carbon emission because we have an increasing population on the oh, Earth. So you see, Charles, it's not America's problem. We're, we're innocent. It's the rest of the world. Well, it, it, <laughs> the, the question is, what are we willing to do? Now, there's, there's some people who say, deal with it, because... The population of the Earth is going to continue to increase. And remember, you know, back in the '60s, there was the Club of Rome predictions, and you know that we, we reach the carrying capacity and, and make ourselves extinct. Now, some people believe that just like other things, we will find a technological solution to sequester carbon and do something different to cool the Earth. 
Um, other people, uh, you know, would say, no, we need to look at issues like population control as part of the whole package of trying to control carbon emission. And it's very hard to, after we in the United States have profitably used carbon based fuels for decades tell the rest of the world as they're trying to reach a better standard of living, you can't do it. So that's the issue. Um, And, you know, I think that the answers to that are somewhat difficult. Yeah. But, you know, and and the solution is not easy either. But, you know, at what point are we going to say, okay, it's time? Uh, the New York Times uh, is... Right, that's the piece I was talking about. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, that's getting a lot of play and a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I read... I didn't get to the whole article. I read about half of it, but it, it almost reads more like a like a, like a a movie script than it does a, a, a usual, uh, you know, the usual kind, of, usual kind of article you'd expect in the New York Times. But it's, um, it, it's, a, it's disturbing because the contention that we could have addressed and should have addressed the climate crisis decades ago, it's hard to argue against that. And uh, the fact that we didn't is, uh, is I, I, you know, I don't know what to say about it at this point. Um, and again, this, 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 you know, leads to some people saying it's too late. We can't, we can't, I mean, there, you know, Guy McPherson is one of the preeminent uh, climate um, commentators uh, who argue that, yeah, we're over the hump. Can't do anything about it now. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. And a lot of climate scientists, including Michael Bain, who I mentioned earlier, you know, disagree with everything. They think he's uh, he's um, way too fatalistic on that. But but there, you know, it's hard to argue. It's hard to really argue that we aren't in in a world of hurt, and that um, you know, the the longer we wait, the less likely we're going to be able to ride through this with any kind of you know, without with any with any kind of ability to avoid real serious consequences. Well, you know, the difficulty is, look what's going on right now. The United States is a net exporter of carbon-based product. Um, That is being touted as an accomplishment which gives us, quote, energy independence. I mean, the idea of energy independence was not to become an exporter. The idea of energy independence was to stop our need to have to kowtow to Middle Eastern regimes Mm. having to be you know, cheek to jowl with the Saudis who have one of the worst human rights records on the planet. Our friends. Our friends, the Saudis. And to get out of the Middle East and let the Middle East figure out its own solution to the problems that they have. Instead, we we are in the middle of it. And um, so, once again, just like the Bakken pipeline crossing Iowa, it's really, energy independence was supposed to make us able to extract ourselves from these problems. Instead, we export it to the right. you know, to the profit of Because the folks who the are extracting it just want to make money. They, they, right. they're, they're and, not that interested in And you who are sitting out here as an American taxpayer are subsidizing those businesses by the size of the American military budget, which has to be that large because of protecting the sea lanes and other things. And also, uh, uh, you know, the environmental disasters that they cause are also uh, subsidized by the American taxpayer. Um, so, so yeah, that's, uh, that's just a on, on a sidebar, a side story on the issue of uh, pipelines, uh, particularly the Dakota, Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, the parent company, Energy Transfer Partners, sued a bunch of groups last year, last August, in fact, a year ago this month. They sued uh, Greenpeace and Earth First. They sued uh, Bank Track. 
Uh, Bold Iowa was named in the soup, a bunch of other smaller groups. And um, they, uh, you know, we've been waiting to see how this lawsuit progresses. But they, basically, Energy Transfer Partners argued that um, they, they, it was a, a RICO case. Uh, they were arguing that we were racketeering, mm. which I've, I always wanted to be in the same, you know, same room with uh, Al Capone. So I guess, guess I made it. But the... Um, the argument was that we... Um, well, we, that, that's a little disingenuous. He wasn't charged with racketeering. Oh, that's He true. was charged with income tax evasion. Ah, uh, well, okay, no, that would put him in the same class as, as Trump. As Paul Manafort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul Manafort. And maybe Donald Trump. Who knows? Who we knows? We've never seen those tax returns. But, the, but big news last week, a, a judge, a district judge in North Dakota, Billy Roy Wilson, ruled that uh, BankTrack had no business being in that lawsuit. Mm-hmm. He, he, he threw them out. And, and Energy Transfer, of course, wasn't happy about that. And now he's our, now he's probably soon going to rule that Earth First should also not be in that, and that leaves Greenpeace. And then I, I don't is, know. What is Bald Iowa still in the suit? Yeah, we're 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 uh, we're named in the suit. So and the, the funny thing is, you know, Bold Iowa and some of these other frontline, you know, small smaller groups were much more front and center in the Dakota Access fight than. Uh, than Earth First or Greenpeace or, or Bank Track, uh, th- those are all very much um, you know marginal players in that fight. Mm-hmm. So you know it'll be interesting if um, if this goes the way we think it's going to go, and after Bank Track being knocked out, Greenpeace and Earth First are knocked out. I don't know whether the whole lawsuit will just crumble after that, or whether they will be they'll continue to try to take some action against the smaller groups like Bold Iowa. I don't know. Well, what's interesting is that part of the suit, from what I understand, involves. Uh, Energy Transfer Partners' First Amendment rights. And, um, you know, at some future time, we can talk about how the right and, and the industrialists have weaponized the First Amendment <laughs> against the very people who it was meant to protect. Um, right. And, 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 and maybe we we'll talk next week about the issue of uh, the ghost guns um, and how that was also defended, uh, you know, the plans for the plastic guns as a First Amendment issue. As opposed to a true Second Amendment yeah. issue, yeah, no, and, and of course, uh, Energy Transfer Partners and its allies were able to weaken First Amendment uh, rights in number of states, a number of states across the country in the last legislative session by uh, defining, uh, you know, a, by creating a crime called criminal sabotage, a critical infrastructure sabotage, and making it seem like, uh, you know, all, all these groups were uh, were, you know, um, you know, being Basically, it was a national security issue. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before we um, before we sh- um, <clears throat> uh, cut out here completely, I want to take a second to thank some of our other uh, underwriting supporters here. Uh, underwriting provided by Sergeant's Garage, located north of downtown Des Moines. They've been working on all makes and all models since 1997. Underwriting also provided by Story County Veterinary Clinic, operated by Dr. Kim Holding, who has been practicing veterinary medicine in central Iowa for over 30 years. Also provided by Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Also by Catering by Sid. Owner Sid Cohn uses fresh local ingredients, and all of her catering arrangements are custom-made. Also underwriting provided by Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, located on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Cinco de Mayo serves authentic Mexican food at affordable prices. All right, thanks again for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. If you're listening on our community-owned stations, we'll be back in a, in a couple of minutes with um, additional conversation. Uh, LeBron James slam-dunks uh, President Trump. 
And also, I think I'm going to move to Italy because there's a Nutella job opening there that just has me drooling. Back in a few minutes, if you're listening on our community-owned stations. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum, always broadcasting live on Mondays at 11 o'clock from Lorena, 1260 a.m. in the morning. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon and Charles Goldman here with you. And uh, so, yeah, it looks like it looks to me like uh, LeBron James uh, has slam dunked President Trump again. Maybe that's not so challenging after all. But uh, you know, t- Trump, he's you know, he kind of was holding off on bashing LeBron James, and some speculated it was because he wanted to make sure that uh, Ohio stayed red in the next election. But I, I think that's uh, I don't think that's the real reason. I think the um, I think just Trump just doesn't like the fact that somebody criticized him. I mean, uh, LeBron. I, I mean, yeah, he's just become pathetic about this. Is he can't take the slightest criticism, um, and all LeBron said was that he felt the president was divisive. That of well, course yeah, he is, said he didn't, yeah. didn't understand or care about people. Hard to argue against that. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, the most interesting thing about this whole episode, of course, was that Melania is I, what, what, what must be going on in the White House and elsewhere it would just be hysterical to know because now, you know, she's watching CNN. And How dare she watch CNN? Right. Well, How the president evidently she? went crazy with that. She was watching CNN. Um, and I think in particular Don Lemon's best, you know, greatest hits. Um, and – she actually came out and said she admires what LeBron is doing, who, by the way, in the interview was talking about the $100 million that he had spent setting up, you know, scholarships for yeah. at-risk kids in Cleveland. Yeah. A city, by the way, he no longer lives in. Right. Yeah. And he's still he's, he's still doing good. I, I mean, I don't know. who The, the guy certainly has had his, his, um, his moments, but uh, nothing like Trump's moments. And Trump just continues to pile on. I mean, his his... His tweet was, LeBron James was just interviewed by the dumbest man on television, Don Lemon. He made LeBron look smart, which isn't easy to do. I like Mike. I'm not even sure what the I like Mike part well, means. But then he, he, he followed it up with the statement about Maxine Waters being now the leader of the uh, Democratic Party and referred to her as, as George, he often does, as low IQ. I, th- I thought George Soros was the leader of the Democratic Party, <laughs> or Tom Steyer. <laughs> no, I mean, and obviously the discussion on the, uh, in the, you know, on the Sunday shows was, is this just more of Trump's racism um, or his, you know, fealty to his, quote, base? Because he seems to have no problem calling African-American people dumb. In yeah. fact, that seems to be uh, what he does quite often. I, I mean, what can you say about the president? He's just disgusting. He it, talks about uh, you know Elizabeth Warren as he's really clever calling her Pocahontas. I mean, that's hysterically funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is. And, and it's just it, there's nothing else to say except it is pathetic to watch a man who has such a thin skin. You know, and he never I'm, – I'm tired of seeing him in front of these adoring crowds that, by the way, they pay people to be there. Um, really? Oh, yeah. I can get paid to go to a, Do- a Donald Trump event? You can. Well, gosh. You can. And 
I'd like to see him in front of a crowd for once in which he was talking about something important and the crowd wasn't there simply to bolster his ego because he feels so badly about what goes on in, yeah. in the D.C. Well, uh, beltway. Jeff Zilgit, a columnist with USA Today, um, says this, uh, quote, it was Trump's version of telling the, the tweet was Trump's version of telling a black basketball player to shut up and dribble. Trump's tweet was petty, mean-spirited, not presidential. It reeked of racism and bigotry. Keep in mind, Trump hasn't said a word about NBA coaches Steve Kerr or George Popovich, who are also frequent critics of the president. So that's to your point. That's true. That this is uh, just an indication of how, 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 how racist uh, this president is. Yeah, and, and of course, it goes back to the whole issue with the NFL, I mean, which is, is another issue that with all that's going on in this country, uh, and I'm saying this as a military veteran. I'm sick of hearing about the national anthem and the fealty to this anthem. People forget that the verses that are not sung also uh, extolled the slaveholders of the early 1800s in the United States. Gee, why are those not sung? Well, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, and the question of whether Trump's a racist doesn't matter. He perceives that his base is feeling threatened by the fact that this is the browning of this country. And he's just, you know, calling out to them. And I'm not going to flip this to the other way, which is saying that if you if you support Donald Trump, you're a racist. Absolutely no, not. No, it has no, nothing that, to do with it. That's I, I object to people making that kind of a right. broad uh, a broad stroke. There's a lot of reasons why there are people who support Donald Trump. Right. Now, I disagree with the vast majority of those reasons, but I, I will not get down to the point of saying you're a racist if you support Trump. But Trump absolutely is calling out to racists. And his issue with Charlottesville or the way he handled Charlottesville, it's all, it's all part of the same. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see what this does for uh, Le- LeBron's career as he moves to uh, California. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, championships following him wherever he goes, maybe. <laughs> and you know something? I really could care less for the most part with sports figures think about politics. There are some people who have, I think, the, the yeah. education and the history to be but, listened to. But here's a guy who's also doing some good work in his community. That's or his, more important yeah. than his political views. Absolutely. This yeah. is a man who, unlike Trump, who's using his hundreds of millions yeah. to good uh, purpose. You know, interestingly, some of the same work that the, that the Koch brothers are trying to do. Well, the Koch brothers are very <laughs> philanthropic in many ways and not just always on the, the right. Yeah. So when I was traveling in Europe years ago, I tell you, I, I was introduced to a food that it's possibly the the best food product ever made. Nutella. <laughs> Nutella. Now, now, you know, years later, everybody loves Nutella. Mm-hmm. Do you know anybody who doesn't love Nutella? No. And, and it, it's sort of one of those things where it's not exactly a GMO uh, natural food. Or non-GMO uh, natural food, I should say. Yeah, it's, it's one of those few processed foods. And I think, you know, this is really, really good. Yeah. And so uh, Nutella, the corporation that makes Nutella, it's, a, it's an Italian company named the Ferrero Company. They're... Um, they're looking for 60 volunteers who actually be paid. I don't understand being a paid volunteer, but the job description actually is, or the job title is, sensory judge. Mm-hmm. And you get to basically uh, taste Nutella for, let's see, how, long, how many months is it? It's like several months. The one problem, the one problem, you got to move to Italy. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh, I can't, they're never going to find 60 people willing to do that, to yeah. get paid to eat Nutella while living in Italy. I mean, can you think of a worse way to be tortured, Charles? I, I'm, I'm just, 
unclear why over this needs to be done over a space of many months. I mean, I, it seems like in one sitting you could do this. Well, yeah, no, 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 because the, the, the volunteers that they'll be selected, um, they'll they'll um, they'll be tested for. It's a three month training course, mm-hmm. three months, right? And it'll start this coming month, September, and it's designed to um, to kind of improve their the the sensory judges. They need to have their their taste buds sharpened, uh, their smell sharpened. They they need to learn to become more discerning, and they'll also learn the words to use, the correct terminology to describe, you know, how they are responding to different uh, types of you know, different tweaks in the Nutella brand. Well, I, I mean, I, I want to do this job badly. Can you, can you fill in for me on the, on the program where be, I go I'd live be, in Italy and eat Nutella? I'd be more than happy to. And I, I suspect this is because they're probably looking at the, you know, competition that's coming out, which is, you know, Kirkland at slash Costco has a competitor now. Yeah. Um, Just because Costco created a Nutella-like product doesn't mean it's a competitor. Uh, anything Costco creates is a competitor, pretty much. A good one? I have no idea. I don't, I don't, I don't eat Nutella, so. <laughs> you don't? Well, this, well, this segment's done. <laughs> you really have never had Nutella? I, I've had it, but I... You don't like I, it? I, no. I, I like it, but I try to okay. avoid eating food like this. Okay. But oh, it, t- it takes a great act of discipline. Yes, it does. Tremendous it, discipline. Yeah, because they put it out in those little things now in the hotels, too, for breakfast. You yeah. know, so you have to well, the way, I, the way I learned to eat in Europe was on bread. You would just spread it mm-hmm. on bread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Anyway, um, if you don't see me around for the next three months, you'll know that I got accepted as a sensory judge to eat Nutella and get paid for it for three months in Italy. Well, while you're over there, you can check and see if it's locally sourced. All right. It'll make you feel better about locally it. Locally sourced <laughs> Nutella. Probably not. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in to the Fallon Forum. Charles Goldman and Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa.